Our sermon text this morning is John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. It'll be our last sermon for a little while in the book of John. We're going to be looking for Advent. We're going to be looking at the incarnation, the incarnation in Isaiah, if you want to join us for that. But as you're turning there to John chapter 4, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we... We long to be transformed. We need to be transformed, God. And if we don't long, or if we don't see the need for that transformation, we ask that you would give it to us. God, if our hearts are cold, warm them up. If they are hard, soften them. God, if our minds are wandering, God, bring them back. Pull them back. Call them back to you. We ask that you would work through your word as you have done through the millennium gone. That you would continue to work through your word, bringing your saints to you. And it is with that humility and with that eager expectation that we come to this text. And we ask that you would make yourself known for your sake. And that you would reveal yourself for your glory. Amen. Amen. Ever since our friend, Johannes Gutenberg, invented the printing press, the ideas of the world have been exchanged through media. That's how ideas have been exchanged around the world. But there's a new form of media now. It's not just the means by which people exchange ideas, but it's the means by which people socialize. Hence, it's given the 
attributive adjective of social. It's now social media. And so one of the great leaps forward of our society is this social media in which you're able to walk around, feed at your face, not talking to people or acknowledging their existence, but you can just look at your phone and then socialize with people who you don't know and you don't have to look at. It's one of our great advances of society. But this fictitious world that so much of us live in is just like the real one. There's kingdoms, there's princes, and there's religions. The main religion of this fake land is not Buddhism, it's not Hinduism, but it's actually wokeism. And one of the main kingdoms of this realm is the land of the Twitterites. And the religious persecution in this land is quite thorough. Anyone who speaks out against this religion of wokeism is thrown into the deep dungeon of cancellation, which is horrible because no one will know what you ate for breakfast and no one will know how much you hate certain politicians. And what is worse for Christians, you will not be able to publish that picture of your coffee right by your Bible and thus tell people that you're having a quiet time. So, I mean, what's the point of having a quiet time if you're not able to tell people that you're having a quiet time? But there's a new land, there's a new prince in this land of the Twitterites, Prince Elon. And he has amassed this great fortune by making cars that are quite spectacular. They don't have tailpipes attached to this car, but their tailpipes are actually at coal-burning power plants. And this Prince Elon is taking his new power quite seriously, and he is freeing people from this dungeon of cancellation and despair. So many humor-starved evangelicals are now rejoicing that the Babylon Bee, a fake satirical publisher, has been freed from this fake dungeon and this fake land of the Twitterites by this fake prince, Prince Elon. And we all mock it, right? It's fake, and it should be mocked. But it isn't always fake. There's a real man in a real land, in a real kingdom, with a real religion. And by his word, people are brought back to life. And by his word, people, though they run to the doorstep, to the threshold of death, by his word, they are pulled back and restored to life and to hell. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. So the main idea, what I hope you walk away with, what I hope you ruminate on over this upcoming week, is that you can trust, and you should trust, in the restoring word of Christ. To trust. Place all of your hope into this restoring word of Christ. So what are we going to see here? Verses 43 through 47, we're going to see the eminence or the closeness of death. How close we really are. Verses 48 through 49, we're going to see what it looks like to come and to come to Christ. How that's what we should all be doing is coming to Christ. And then finally, verses 50 through 54, we're going to be seeing what it looks like to have life through Christ. So the closeness or the eminence of death, coming to Christ, and then life through Christ, all so that we can leave here trusting in the restoring 
word of Christ. Let's go back to the text here in verse 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Here we find our Savior, who is seemingly in the earlier part of the chapters determined to leave Jerusalem, but he's in no hurry to arrive in Galilee. As he travels through Samaria, stays two more days at Sakar after his encounter with the Samaritan woman, and their eagerness to hear. The word of God and the teachings of Christ are quite commendable. But after staying there and being welcomed, both he and his disciples, they then uh, go north to Galilee. But they don't go where you expect him to go. You expect him to go to his hometown, to Nazareth. That's what you would expect. But they, in that town, they have condemned themselves. For they think they know Christ, but they only know the outer fringes of Christ. They don't actually know him and who he is. They know some things about him, but they don't know him. And actually what they do know, it might be true, but it's not the true substance of who Christ is. So they know, they know this Jesus was born to a woman out of wedlock. She wasn't married. Yeah, that's true, but what they don't realize is that he was born of a virgin, thus fulfilling the prophet of Isaiah 750 years earlier. They do know that he was a poor, the son of a carpenter. And they were so poor, they would go to the temple and offer doves, as you see in other gospel accounts. But that they don't know is that he might be poor of this world, but that he's, he has all riches at his hand, and that he actually created everything. He created the whole world, and that he upholds it by the power of his word. So never allow your final judgments about Christ to be based upon who you currently think he is. There's always more. The riches are unending. Even if you're in faith, you have much to learn about Christ. And these depths are plumbed by communing with him. But as it is, this Christ himself is without honor, even in his own hometown. So then it's not Nazareth, but then rather Cana that receives this glorious work of Christ. Notice how the works of Christ and what they've actually been doing, how they prepare the people to receive the word. The water and the wine and everything that they did in the feast. They're not done to amaze people or to impress them, but rather to prepare their hearts and open their eyes. That they might see the truth of who Christ is. So we have to frame your own life in that understanding that all that God is doing or all that God has done through your life, whether it be good, whether it be bad, whether it be joy or sorrow, health or sickness, God is doing all of this to prepare you and open up your heart and open up your eyes that you might receive his word and see him 
as he truly is. And that's all that matters, is that you would receive the word of life. Take, for example, this official in our text. He's heard of what has happened in Cana, the water being turned into wine, and God has used that to prepare his heart. He's an official, probably of Herod Antipas, who's the same um, Herodian official that oversees the death of John the Baptist, oversees then later the crucifixion of Christ. You see that in Luke 23. As it often says, the greatest of men, as we see with this official, that the greatest of men are beggars before God. All that you have and all that you esteem for and you strive for it, years and years and years of school, cutthroat corporate world, profit margins, to be esteemed by the world and to make a name for yourself, it's nothing. Don't strive to be known before men, but strive to be known by God. So it's with great fanfare that Christ is welcomed back into Cana. As they're welcoming him in the midst, they're rejoicing. He's back. The guy who saved the wedding, he's here. And he's gonna do, I'm probably going to do something again. This will be great. And then this official runs up and the moments of this levity and the moments of the greeting are over when he opens his mouth and he says, come quickly, come, come quickly, for my son is at the point of death. And you see that we can't be deceived by the moments of levity in our lives. But in this great moment, this moment of joy, the sobriety follows right in. Seemingly where joy has opened up the door to walk in your life, Sorrow is right there behind it. Doesn't even have to open up the door, just walks in right behind it. And so we see this young boy that we hear about. He's living, yes, but he's living and he's at the point of death. But it's not just him, it's all of us. Who here is greater than a moment away from death? We don't know. You don't know. As the, the psalmist writes, the snares of death encompass me and the pains of Sheol are laid upon me. I suffer distress and anguish. And for the Christian, this is great news. We might suffer until we get there, but, but at the point of death, this is great news. But it's far better, as Paul would say, to be with the Lord. But for those who don't know Christ, don't deceive yourself. If you do not believe, you might not be ill now. But what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while. Just a mist that appears for a little while, but then it vanishes You are living at the point of death, as you see with this child. Let's continue our story here. Let's go back up to verse 46. For he came again to Canaan Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. 
Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went over to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down. Come down before my child dies. You see the desperation, obviously, of this father. He hears about it. Rumors are about floating about. And so he travels from Capernaum to Cana, about 17, maybe 20 miles. You see the desperation of this moment. You can have everything, but yet you have nothing. When all you have is of the world, it can be taken away so quickly. And you see how it escalates, right? How he's working. His son was ill. And then he's at the point of death. And then he's saying, no, come quickly before he dies. This trouble is escalating. He knows his son's about to die, but he leaves and then he goes. As Elkhart writes, of this sorrow that you've all felt, it's not without purpose, but human sorrow, human sorrow is the birth pains of faith. The sense of utter powerlessness leads the soul to cast itself on the one who is stronger. And cast himself on him for strength. So this man in great desperation. He comes and he's pleading with Christ. Come, come, come down before my son dies. And Jesus tells to him. Unless you see the signs you won't believe. See the signs and wonders or, or you won't believe. See, this, this man, he's come to him, and he has this mix, right? A little bit of belief, a little bit of unbelief. He believes enough to come to, come to Christ because he knows he, that he will do something. But he has no idea that he can do it from Cana. He's pleading with him, come down, come down, come with me to Capernaum. Come in the presence of my son, and then you will be able to heal him. Christ will do all that it takes to filter out every instance of unbelief in your life. And if you're a Christian, this is the most uncomfortable part about being a Christian. As Christ reveals our unbelief and makes us lean on him and plead on him for life and for hope. And just to make it through the day. We believe enough to know Christ, but we live in such a way that we profess that we have no idea of what he is actually capable of doing, either in our lives or in the lives of others. How often are we reluctant almost to share the gospel with someone because we think, oh, well, they're too far gone. Their heart is too hard. I've been pleading with them for years and years. God will never do this work. How many wives are frustrated with the addictions of their husband, thinking that he will never be able to get over it. He can. Pray for him. Don't act in unbelief. So these signs are okay, but 
unbelief causes you to always ask for more signs. God, thank you for this, this little bit of health, but if you could bring me a little bit further, then I would trust you all the much more. Whereas our prayer should be, God, thank you for my health. If you take it away, praise be to you. And I will trust you through everything. That is the work of Christ in the, work, in the life of the believer. So it is this, the duty then of all men, of all women, to come to Christ here. And when we, when we read these words, this man comes pleading with Christ, and Christ seems either aloof or unaware of what is actually happening. Here's this man who comes to him pleading, pleading for the life of Christ, for the life of his son. But then he's almost lectured, like, oh, unless you see these signs, you're not going to believe. So Christ, at, at first blush, you think, oh, man, it's kind of harsh, right? Here's this desperate man, just, you could do it, just heal his son. It's not that much, right? Why do you got to lecture him? Just help the poor guy out. But what we don't realize, we are unaware of what is happening. We're like the official. The situation is bad, yes. We have no idea how desperately bad and how horrible it truly is. We are closer to death. The man's struggle is not that his son is dying. That's it, okay? The man's struggle is not that his son is dying. Maybe that's what God used to drive him to Christ. Maybe that's what God is going to use to drive you to Christ, his great sorrow and great suffering. Praise be to God. But that's not your problem. The problem is your unbelief. The problem is not that your son or your daughter might die. The fact is, and the point of the text is, the great tragedy would be for your son to live and you to die and go to hell. That would be horrible. So what's driving you to Christ, understand there's far more going on. It's not the difficulty in your life that needs to be alleviated. No, it's the fact that the gates of hell are opening up, ready to welcome you in. Ready to pull you in with great comfort. That's the tragedy. And some of you have endured very well through suffering. And it's quite commendable. But don't lose sight of that. That all of this is a means by which God is using to drive you to Christ, that you might trust Him, that you might plead with Him all the much more. That it wouldn't be our health that is restored, but our lack of, of belief. That we wouldn't, in our culture, have this great comfort and sing ourselves joyfully, comfortably, healthily into the pearly gates of hell forever. So we are on this wonderful note, uh, note here. You're, you're closer to death than you realize. And this amusement may distract you for a little bit, but it, it won't delay it. Death is still there. So you can amuse yourself and distract yourself, but it won't delay it. So turn to God now and face Him now before He comes and come to him before he comes to you with his face turned upon you.
What are we going to see? How does all this work then? Christ is not welcome. He goes into Cana, but the word of him and all that he's doing is preparing the hearts of people to receive the word. God has this desperate situation of his child who is dying. The greatest of sorrows has welcomed himself, welcomed himself into their family. And of course, this desperation drives him. He's probably tried everything. And now he's going to go 17 miles to talk to Christ. And he goes there and he pleads with him because his son is dying. And then Christ tells him that unless I give you these signs, you won't believe. The real issue is your lack of belief. Let's pick it up there in verse 50. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went away. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. He had asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. We're going to pause there. You read this, and you go, I know why it's in the Bible. That's in the Bible because the son got healed and he lives, right? Well, that's not the story of my life. And that's what you're thinking. It's good that it's in here. But in my life, that doesn't happen. When we approach the text that way, we miss it. We're still looking for the external things. We still have the, the motivations of the Father to drive us to Christ, but we don't have the true belief that is there. Right? So when we read this and we think, no, no, I still have cancer. No, no, I've been pleading for family members who are having their minds swiped away by dementia and Alzheimer's. I've been pleading that they would be restored, not just physically, but to have a spiritual life, but you don't see it happening, you can become embittered against this, right? You think, oh, well, that's true because it happens in the text. Or that's, of course, it's a great ending because it's in the Bible. Don't miss the point that the whole point is that it's to drive you to depend upon Christ. So if, you, if the sorrow never goes away, that's okay. It's driving you to Christ. The illness never goes away. That's okay. Its purpose is to drive you to Christ. So don't look at the faithfulness of God as a, a clean health. That's not it. Let's go back to the text. Don't let Satan tempt you towards bitterness in that. So it can happen in the Bible, but it won't happen. It can happen in your own life. Verse 53. The father knew that the hour was when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he said to him, and, and he himself believed in all of his household. And this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Go, Christ says, go, for your son will live. And this is the, the life-giving words of Christ that we all need. Do you realize he just healed him? Christ just healed him. 
And he didn't need to lay hands upon him. He didn't need to be in the same room. He didn't even need to be in the same town. He's 17 miles away. And he still heals him. No matter how far you are away from Christ and from God, no matter how far you might consider yourself away, how much brokenness is in your life, how much sin you had over this past week, over the course of your whole life, how much greed is driving you, our present state is never beyond the restoring touch of Christ and His Word. So armed with these promises of God, what does this man do? Armed with the promises of God, he walks right back into his troubles. And he faces them. He had the word of God, he had the word of Christ, and then that was enough. And at that moment, he doesn't, he doesn't continue on in his unbelief. He doesn't ask for more signs. He's like, none of that. No fleeces, nothing. He goes and he sets his face back to Capernaum, back to his gravely ill son, with the full expectation that he will be well. Isn't that enough for us? Don't we have enough promises of Christ before us to go and to, to face our troubles, to go right back into it, to not to seek alleviation, but just to go right back into it? As Paul writes in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Isn't that enough? That if you believe that you'll be saved? Is it enough in Romans 8? That we know that for those whom, who love God, all things work together for, his, for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Is that enough promises for you to go and to face your troubles? To face the sorrow of a dying son? Do we not have the promise that we can, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, that we might be able to comfort those who are also in affliction? Is the promise of God to comfort us in the midst of our sorrows, is that enough? Absolutely. Is it enough that we've been blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing of the heavenly realm if we are in Christ? Is that enough for you, brothers, sisters? Is there more? Do you want more? Is it enough that... As we had in, in this previous chapter here of Christ telling this woman that everyone who drinks of this water, this living water, or no, everyone who drinks of the water of, of the earth, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Is this promise of eternal life to be satisfied in Christ throughout all of eternity? Is that not enough? Can, is that enough for you to go back and to face Everything in your life? Is it enough that we are promised that in the Father's house there are many, many rooms? 
And the Christ who has gone up there, now he's gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is, that where we might also be. I think that's enough. Is it enough in Hebrews 13, 5 that he says that he will never, never leave us, nor will he forsake us. These are the promises of God. Just, just a small sample of them that you have when you believe. So it's no wonder then that this man is able to, to go and to joyfully then go back into the situation of his dying son. So if you wonder how you're going to make it through this season when you have little hope and less and no expectation and less confidence that, that anything will go well, what do you do? Well, you arm yourself and you surround yourself and you clothe yourself with these promises of God, with the word of God. And then, faithfully, like a woman of God, like a man of God, you walk through the slew of despondence and the valley of despair that God has placed before you on your way to this celestial city armed with the promises of God. And so the evidence abounds. You've seen it in your own life. You see the, the evidence even here in the text. That the son was healed that very hour. Let us not be like the man when he first approaches Christ that we're constantly looking for more signs. Constantly looking for more evidence. Just looking for more signs and wonders before you will place all of your faith or hope or joy in Christ. God moves in us. It's one of the commentator writes. Faithfully, gently, effectively from these lower rungs of faith. And what we see him do. God heal me. God heal my son. God, take this pressure out of my life. These lower rungs of faith and what we see him do to the higher rungs, which is absolute and unseen trust, springing not from what we see him do, but rather from the knowledge of who he is. So then, we see here the end of all of our joys and our sorrows and our sufferings. What is it? That you might believe. That's what it's all driving for. Why do we struggle with cancer? So that we might believe and trust in God. That is why. Go and, you, and your son will live. And there's absolute certainty that the result of belief is life. And there's no doubt. There's no changing of it whatsoever. There's two, there's two references of belief here. The, the one is in verse 50 when he believes the word. And it's accompanied by this action. He believed and then he went. But then there's also the belief in 53. The man believed. They believed who Christ is. Not just what he would do. That he is the Messiah. That he is the giver of life. Perhaps you're like this man. And you've come here. And you, you don't, maybe, maybe you don't even know why you've come here. Maybe your parents brought you. 
Maybe your husband or wife has insisted that you've come and for the sake of your marriage, you're just going to come and put up with this man yelling at you for a half hour. Maybe you don't even know why you're here. But whatever the reason is, it is my prayer, and it has been our prayer throughout this whole week, that whatever the reason is that you came here, whatever, maybe, it's, maybe it's the sorrow like this man who's driving you to Christ. It's a prayer that we would, you would leave here full of faith and belief in Christ. That by believing and trusting in Christ alone, that you may have life. That you may depart as this man did. No, and depart here. That you may go, for you will live. What do we do? Briefly, we're running long. If this is true, how do, how do we live it out in our lives? Number one, examine what is holding you back from Christ. Shall you wait until the difficulties of your life are beyond your grasp? Should you, should you wait until the addictions not only ruined your life, but every, everyone in your family? Is that you, you want to wait till then and then go to Christ? Should you wait in Capernaum until your child is ill? You're going to wait until then? Is the health of your child withholding you from driving, from going to Christ? Do you ever think of it that way? Go now to Christ. How sad would it be that the temporal has withheld you from the eternal. So examine your hearts and know what is holding you back from Christ. Number two, press forward, as we talked about quite a bit, press forward in your troubles and your sorrows with the promises of God. Your, your sorrow is temporal. It really is. And I've been there, seen it in the throes of death. Last but a moment. But the glory, the glory is eternal. So drink, drink of this future glory and grace by walking to your sorrow and to your troubles, armed with these promises of God. Number three, finally, understand the role of suffering in your life. These struggles are here for a purpose. They're not to be mitigated. They're not to be overcome. They're here to drive you, you broken and pleading into the arms of God. And it's our, it's our natural response then that as we are driven by sorrow and by desperation into the arms of God, that we, we believe in Him and be held by Him, be known by Him, and to be loved by Him forever and ever. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You that we can be a people that are thankful for sorrow in our lives. God, that You exalt those who are humbled, even as we come here to look forward to a communion, God, we exalt in the humiliation of Christ, God. 
We ask that you would give us the eyes to see what you are doing in our lives. That you would, that the main issue is our, our lack of belief, our unbelief. God, purge it from our hearts. If we don't have any belief, God, that you would give it to us and give it to us now, God. In any degree of unbelief that we have, God, that though it may be difficult and though it will be painful, that you would pull it, that you would rip it, that you would tear it out of our lives, that we might be broken and be remolded from the state of our brokenness, be fashioned again, not in our image, but into the image of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.